Welcome to the Pints and Polishing Podcast, the most informational, educational, and entertaining podcast for auto detailers. Welcome to the community. Welcome to the Pints and Polishing Podcast. Yeah, this is Marshall. I'm your guide as we journey through the auto detailing industry. In today's episode, I'm a guest on another podcast. And so this is going to be the uh, the copy that they sent over. So Dan, thanks so much for getting that sent over. This is my sit down with uh, the Owner's Pride podcast. They sent me some beer. So it's cool to hear about who owns the Owner's Pride group. Uh, Dan, I guess, came over from another company to help build up this company for some guys that were, well, one of the, the owners uh, was a GM of a dealership which is cool to learn in this episode. We get to learn more about why I have said over the years to always be active inside the dealership world. There's a lot of financial uh, money to be made. There's a lot of business to be made. It's interesting now that we're starting to see brand reps go around to dealerships and suddenly be talking about dealerships. You know, there's a lot to be done inside dealerships. I've always recommended as long as you got your business done the right way, so this is a cool episode for you guys to get a little bit more information. We get to go into community, why I created the community, all the benefits of being a part of community. And uh, I know that you guys will want to grab a pint and enjoy. Welcome to the Owner's Pride slash Pints and Polisher podcast. Your host, Dan Williams. I've got... Owner partner from CDS and Owner's Pride, Eric Brulette, and from Pints and Polishers, Mr. Marty Hill. How are you guys doing? Great, great. Eric, nice to meet you, man. Doing we said good. that a second ago, but great to meet you. Uh, Dan, uh, first time we've actually yeah, talked good. too, so great to meet you, man. Thanks yeah. for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, definitely somebody who I've seen around forever. I can't, it, it kind of blows me away when I see people, when I don't know people, and we've both been in the space for so long you know so shame on both well, of us oklahoma's a small place man we we just got out of tps a couple of years ago so we, internet is is slow here we're still on dial up but, you know we we'll get there eventually <laughs> so well i think one of the things um we'll kind of crack into which is fun and how you two sort of ended up on here together is um you have pints and polisher podcast i'm a teetotaler i don't drink because it makes me homeless and eric he is uh, a part owner of a brewery and uh so it just really kind of made sense to throw you guys in there together so um, i have a lot of experience with beers prior to the big microbrewery explosion um but first of all marty how did you come up with pints and polishing as a podcast yeah great question uh a lot of people have asked that over the years i literally uh when i was looking so i'm a kind of i guess i would say a, a gary v uh follower in a sense you know I, i've patterned a lot of the way i've grown my business from local to national i've grown it off of a lot of stuff i've listened to him and uh in 2017 i did a flip challenge he had a gary v 27 flip challenge and i i private labeled a polisher began to just you know try and hustle a polisher out into the game and in order to do that in order to begin to grow i started just ask people what are some of the things they'd like right i mean uh, detailers, you can ask them what they like, what they, you know, partake in, and it can come down to basically two things, uh, beer and weed. Uh, we couldn't really talk about weed on a national level, so we went with beer. All right, all right. Yeah. And, and so that's probably a pretty fun way to bring people onto the show. Um, do you guys usually just uh, sip one or two, or uh, are there instances where you just guys got went for it? Uh, of course, there's always those times where we drink it too much. You know, uh, I think one of the, the times that it's come out was uh, when we did a mobile tech expo. Uh, when it, Let's see, that was Vegas of 19 because we didn't do it in 20, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so Vegas of 19 was that first mobile tech expo launch. And uh, there was a booth that didn't show up. So uh, working with mobile tech, instead of doing the pint night like we normally were doing with them, we went ahead and just did full episodes right there on the floor of Mobile Tech Expo. And uh, we weren't exactly ready 
Uh, we just jumped in and went for it. And by the end of the day, man, we we, we probably drank like 10 or 12 beers. DJ was like, hey, you know, <laughs> I was I was pretty tipsy. I mean, it, it just is what it is. You know, we, that second day, we, we made sure to hydrate ourselves a bit more. But there's no doubt by the end of that, uh, that first day at Mobile Tech Expo 19, we were we were pretty trashed. All right. And Eric, tell you're opening a new brewery. It's still in the process of being built, I believe. Yeah, I was just sending photos. So me and my brother, we've followed the beer culture, been around craft beer our whole life, um, and really embraced it. My brother is the one he started brewing. Don't I can't brew to save my life. So I can drink beer though. That's the part of it I like. But so he came up with a plan, started home brewing, um, gathered some money and then bought brewing equipment, rented a space. Right now they actually are taking the concrete floor out of this building, which is from the early 1900s, to put in the floor drains, the plumbing, everything else, spending um, a ton of time to do everything the right way. And then our brewing equipment's actually, AVE makes brewing equipment. Um, they're really good, but they're actually in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is only 45 minutes from us here. Um, we just got a photo, our equipment's done, you buy that. It takes about four months to they hand build it all the stainless steel. Um, and so that is going down the path and the craft brewing space is really just as doggy dog as the detailing space, a <laughs> bunch of people online that are savages and then a bunch of other people that are good people that like the industry. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, almost, it's almost exact same. There's people that own businesses and breweries and the brewers there I've seen with my brother are some of the most helpful people in the world. And then your beer drinkers are the guys that just go rip people apart. <laughs> no, it's really no yeah. different than us from detail. Yeah, so it's that's very true. So from the podcast, what we've done over the past couple of years is we will go out and do beer tours and go walk through the craft, be, you know, breweries and and do all that stuff. And you're right. I mean, when you meet and actually, there's a local detailer that uh, uh, his dream was, and we actually started brewing some beer together. And he was our beer nerd. The very first couple, I guess that first year, he would be he was our beer nerd. He's now uh, the head brewer for a local brewery. He's the master brewer. And so you're yeah. right, man. I mean, the people that are in the culture, like working it and it's their livelihood, dude, coolest people around, no doubt. You've got American Solera down by you with the yep. owner used to own Prairie and built that. that so my brother yep. lives in Norman. So we go down, always drive up to Oklahoma City, go to Prairie. And now next time we drive down, we're actually taking the, so I think it's 45 minutes out of the way to hit American Solera on the way down. Uh, yeah, please let me know. I'd love to meet you there. They got a, they, they got some great beers. If you like, you like the IPAs similar to what you sent me? I like IPAs, stouts, wild ales. They have that cool ship I see that's in the big room to like let things wild fermentation process happen. I mean, I love all beer though. Yeah. Uh, they're right next to another place called maybe, Cabin maybe a Boys. <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay uh and there's a cool little outside place with a food truck and you know you got both breweries right next to each other it's it's a nice little place sweet yeah when yeah. i come down i'll hit you up and we can go drink some beer i'll bring my brother too he uh i think he's talked to the owner of american solera and a couple other things so we'll probably go down there and drink beer and drink, i like to drink too much beer so it'll be fun definitely that's what uber's for what do you say the name of your brewery is called eric Lumen, L-U-M-E-N. And so there's actually a funny thing. So we filed, got our name done, everything else. So Lumen Beer, Lumen Brewery, and freaking CenturyLink, uh, internet provider, named their, for the third rename, named their company Lumen. And so you drive down Dodge in Omaha, they have a skyscraper that says Lumen in font bigger than our entire building on the front of their building. So all you see it. So I was like, we got to double down on SEO because they're paying a bunch to get us free Lumen advertising. That's Brilliant. a nice little hack. Brilliant. Yeah. So, hey, um, another piece of the puzzle that kind of made this a really nice match is um, at my last company, I was working on a dealership program. Eric has been a GM at dealerships, and um, that's where his whole life you know, came from is through the dealerships. And I was just listening to a podcast with you, Marty, where you were with uh, Greg, and I learned that you, too, came from the dealership world uh no i mean I've, I've never worked in a dealership uh so so that my my involvement with dealerships is as a vendor 
strictly as a vendor relation. You know, as I started my business here, the Total Auto Solutions, I started out of my garage in 2010 and had to immediately go hustle to figure out how to go into a dealership and do a cold call and be able to walk through a sales presentation. As you know, I mean, right? I mean, as a GM of a store, you know, there's some trained people that got to come in and, and do that. You guys got to be trained with, you know, fighting objections. And there's that whole sales process, which is super interesting. Uh, I I just began that process. And over the years, and it took uh, at least six months to get my first account. And by eight to 10 months, I had two or three. And then later then joined with Permaplate and began to sell uh, programs to dealerships, to finance. So we were, when I started going into the dealerships, I immediately saw and changed the name from LM Solutions to Total Auto Solutions because I really felt that as a detailer and as a supplier to detailers uh, and as supplying to service side, that the whole industry inside the dealership world, if they focused on using detail, it would drive a massive profit center for their dealership. And so that's what we began doing, working both finance department, uh, service drive to increase the uh, dealership revenue by increasing the customer pay and increasing, uh, you know, protection products through the finance department so that detailers could uh, benefit from sales inside of the dealership. Okay. And you're, what you're selling now is still going into dealerships? Correct. You- mm-hmm. Okay, and are you still working with Permaplate, or do you... No, no, we're not. I still have a good relationship with uh, the Nyson family. Great people. Uh, John, uh, you know, has taken over. Um, So, you know, wait, no, not John. John, uh, Who's the son? The the oldest son took over. I I think John was the dad. I can't remember who the oldest son was, but uh, the youngest son, we actually went through the same class together uh, where I went out to Fort Lauderdale and went through their... Uh, you know, how to do a presentation through finance and went over all the finance uh, discussions and all that. Learned all the back end, uh, all the front, end, you know, just basically took their crash course in understanding finance. Yeah. And, and so a lot of times you hear de- detailers who are kind of uh, poo poo on the dealership space, you know, and a lot of the products that they use are actually okay products, but they put so much pressure and time constraints and don't let the detailers in there, you know, do things correct, but they sell good paper. And, um, I think that you're kind of, of the same, uh, thought process of, um, going in and, and selling compliant paper, right? Uh, well, I mean, you have to inside a dealership world, you have no options, but selling compliance, uh, unless you want to do it illegally, and there are plenty of dealerships that do a self-insured in a sense, and those dealerships just run the risk on their own side. But uh, as far as legalities, you know, there has to be a third-party admin uh, if the dealership chooses to not private insure it themselves. Correct. Right. So that was kind of so, the. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Eric. So yeah, Marty, I want to pick your brain on this because this is something that I talked to Dan about. And it goes through my head almost daily. So for us, we have the boutique detail side. And everyone offers a warranty. But as you know, a lot of the company's warranties aren't fitted for a dealership. Or they wouldn't pass. There's no clip. There's no reserve. There's, I mean, as you know, shit in 14 states, it's mandatory. And then in half those, you have to be admin backed by someone who has 100 mil unencumbered. And so for us... The whole focus is, okay, how do you do it the right way? Then for the dealership segment, they are doing it the right way. But we have companies in our guy, in our area that will try to have their detailers go sell them to a dealership, push that warranty into it, only maybe to get audited. Who knows what will happen? But so now let's move down 10 years. So we have this electrical vehicle movement, right? And so you have Volkswagen, GM, Volvo. All these people that are moving all to electric. And so, as you know, where's where's most of the money made? They're made on F&I service contract. And so there's going to be a forced movement into looking at aftermarket. Ceramic coating, well, all, who knows what who knows what will be, we'll be putting on cars then. But coatings will be a real huge thing along with aftermarket upfitting. And so my question is, for your point of view, 
what will the dealership do versus our market on entering space? Because we're going to collide. So it's going to be us versus them. They spend $13 billion a year on just advertising, which is insane. How are, I guess, how are detailers going to really come in and say, hey, we're doing this. I know you have a bunch of stuff to do with the IDA. What's the IDA going to come out and say and say, hey, guys, how do we make a better warranty? How do we make sure everyone's compliant? So if we go compete against the dealership, we start selling ancillary products in the detail shops that we're not putting anyone in harm's way. All right, let's kind of let's kind question. of break yeah yeah let's let's break that down. All right, let's let's go into a couple couple different parts before we do real quick, man. I, I'm enjoying the beer, man. Nicely done. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Good, yeah. Good beer. Hey, cheers, Mike. Cheers. Um, so, IDA, I so I run. Wait, I just started a, a podcast for them. It's it's what's called the International Detail Association podcast, right? Uh, but the inner workings, I'm not I'm not sure what they're doing. I. I think that there's some programs where they're trying to get some, uh, you know, some stuff out to the public on a on detail. But I don't, I don't know. I I, I couldn't speak for that. You know, I I, I don't know. Um, okay. so what was it? What was that? I, sorry, what was the other question? How does a detailer compete so, so, going so, into a dealership? I think is what you were saying. Well, yeah. So basically, my yeah. So my thought is, we're going So we're we're going after new car customers and customers that will be buying a ceramic coating from a dealership or a new car, uh, their audience, they're going to be entering our space and saying, Hey, don't buy from the detailer because X, Y, Z, because a, we can probably put it in your financing and do it at the point of sale. So you have one quick payment. But the real thing is how do you make sure our area, everyone steps up their warranty to be able to compete with that dealer warranty? Uh, I would say the way you do it is drill your business the biggest you can and you just kind of outpace everybody setting the standard for what people have to achieve. Uh, as far as somebody going into a dealership, I mean, they, they are going to have to have, if they're going to go in with a coding, um, unless that you know owner principal chooses to insure it himself and run that risk on his own side, but understand as a detailer, you know, you're – your your name's right in there with it, so are you sure that you really want to be a part of that? You know, that's that becomes a question of, you know, not integrity by any means. It comes a question of how much do you need the money. I think there's a lot of people that trade money for opportunity and money for risk all the time. So it is a risk. Uh, you could get into some trouble, no doubt. Uh, there's plenty of people that do it every day, though. Um I, I would recommend, no doubt, that if the detailer is going to, and the way we teach in our in our coatings, um, is is going in with an administrative warranty, uh, so that you can go into the dealership, let the GM know, let the finance manager know, let the service manager know, let everybody know that you're qualified to be able to install it, as well as you're qualified to offer them, Dan, as you said, the correct paperwork. Um, at, I would agree, Dan. Like. I feel at the end of the day, dealerships, you know, that's where they understand their profit and their liability risk. And if they can sell paper, they'd love to sell paper, no doubt. I mean, I think all three of us would love to just sell paper, wouldn't it? I mean, it. it <laughs> you, you, why not? You know, I I agree. I mean, that's when I started the coatings in 2016, I, I immediately reached out to Permaplate. I reached out to, I've reached out to different admins of third-party administrators uh, I think four different meetings I got shot down. The fifth I have uh, currently, we have a third-party admin that we are using. Uh, it finally worked for us. But, I mean, I saw early on the need for the third-party admin, no doubt, in the dealership world. I mean, you have to, legality-wise. So are you, is your admin letting you take the having a detailer offer that same warranty or no? So wait, wait, wait. Where, hold on, like, hold on, wait, wait. Ask me that question again because I, I don't think I fully understood it. So, are you? Do you have the ability to have like? So, you sign up a detailer to sell your coating. Are they able to offer that same warranty to the consumer? Correct. Direct. Correct. Yes. Yes. Yeah, they could. They could sell it yeah. direct to consumer that yes. goes into their store, or they can sell that third-party administered warranty to a dealership. Correct. Well, at. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about it, though, because for us... Oh, sorry, Dan. No, no, go ahead. So, yeah, it's 
that you had three meetings before you found an admin that was willing to jump on it. For us, it was people look at it that the detailer is going to rob the company blind and the admin company is going to go broke. And the whole thing for us is really giving the opportunity to even prove that wrong because as we know, the detailer typically is going to do all the work in the correct way. Um, the high risk is the person bringing in the car that's got pre-existing damage, someone lying and taking advantage of it. But I would say you're at a greater advantage at the dealership of that happening too. So, I mean, the crazy part for us is you found one, we found one. Why aren't these other people looking for one a little bit? But it's that's, good for us. That's, I. I mean, it, it's because I think they don't understand. That's why, Dan, I appreciate you mentioning. I mean, I didn't grow up in the dealer world. I've just, I've, I've had to bleed. I've had to, you know, <laughs> cut my teeth. I've, I've had to figure it out. And I bet, you, you know, we've said this. We say it from our podcast all the time. There's, there's a lot of people that have come into the industry over the past five years, right? I mean, they don't know the ins and outs, right? They don't know really what happens. They've just been come in from the opportunity of coatings. It is what it is. I'm happy to have, you know, great, you know, but, but for a detailer's point of view, once they dig in and look at who's behind it and look at the experience, you are correct. There's very few people that have gone to the level that your company, that my company, Total Auto Solutions has, uh, I, I struggled early on to find that third-party admin purely on third-party admins are solely, since they are only paper, they need volume. And so being a startup, being a pure startup entrepreneur, I didn't have the volume that they needed early on in those 16, 17, and 18. You know, it, it wasn't until the growth of 19 and then the explosion of 20 that really helped more coatings be able to be more prevalent to where the people that trade paper understand that the risk really isn't there and we're able to open up their doors at least that's my story yeah i think that's my philosophy in business if if you do it and do it right you build it for the long term um are you going to be at mobile tech this year marty oh yeah no doubt that's the plan so eric and i are doing um one of the educational um speeches uh about warranty compliance actually so Cool. Uh, yeah, I been, think were you guys on, working the, on what? Were you guys doing the? Were you guys doing it for the uh, the virtual education too? No, we didn't make it for that. We were signed up to do okay. it in Florida, but that show got canceled, and then yeah, and then tough, we just wasn't it? we're working with. We were waiting on answers and stuff, and <laughs> to make sure that we had everything yeah. completely. Lined I mean, we've up. been working with and we've been working with and for anyone listening. Um, Meenan Law Firm, they represent um, the m- dealership side of the coding council. Firm Plate's also a member of that, and most of your big players are. Uh, and they are the head law firm of it, are the legal counsel for it. And we were actually working hand-in-hand hand with them on getting a ton of the answers of, in our space, what's legal, what's not legal, um, what's heavily in the gray area, um, what impact does the administration that's over it have. And so, I mean, it was really, we wanted to be fully geared up because I don't want to put my foot in my mouth on anything that we say. And so we just wanted to have the correct conversation with the right people, which by the way, is not a free conversation. You have to pay 500 bucks an hour to talk, but whatever. Yeah, it it is interesting, isn't it? Uh, I think that as I, you know, as we all understand the term snake oil, right? Um, The interesting thing for me is seeing dealerships, not go with pure true ceramic coatings because they only pedal paper, right? I've got a local dealership that is now foaming on their ceramic coating after they wash their car and they just pop on a foam cannon and foam on their ceramic coating, rinse it off. And by golly, that thing's protected for seven years. Mm -hmm. The crazier one than that is dry warranties. Yeah. So the ability to be a dealership and go out um, in our home state, Nebraska, the dealer council luckily stepped in and stopped it. But there's a lot of states where it's fully legal to tell the customer, you have a ceramic coating and all I have to sell you is the paper. You don't have to do You don't even have to put water on the car. Yeah. You tell them you're protected and the paper covers it and you tell them there's a coating on the car. Crazy, it, isn't it? It makes, changes it from being a, a non-chargeback to a chargeback item if it's a dry, though. That's the only the only downside for those guys. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. You know, it, it so sensible, yeah. I don't like to like talk negatively about the other companies. Always your best in business, I think, to focus on what you do right and stand on a soapbox and just say that. Um, but it really would be awesome as moving forward in the industry to make everybody have that real compliant uh, type of product. And I think that a lot of the detailers may not even realize that they're potentially at risk when they're selling a non-compliant warranty. Uh, for example, if a cust- if the company that they were buying from and selling a warranty went out of business and it was it didn't have a clip on it, it wasn't properly insured, um, and there ever was a problem down the road, that could come back onto them as being the responsible party for it. Now, full knowing that it's a you know a fairly low percentage of problems that come in, but still, I don't think that people really realize that they're exposing themselves like that. Yeah, everybody just. Oh, I didn't, was it a question? I... Oh, it's just a comment conversation. Yeah, you know, I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think the only other way around it, Dan, in your theory, would be if they didn't sell a five to seven big ticket item, right? If they're selling a one to two year coating, you're not charging two thousand dollars. You're charging three hundred, four hundred. You made extra profit of a couple hundred bucks an hour. There's a lot of detailers that would love that kind of revenue if they didn't try and hit home runs all the time and just went for singles and doubles. You know, you, you make the Hall of Fame pretty quick, batting three hundred. Um, I. I that's the opposite side is, of course, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of detailers that won't be in business in the next five to seven years. There's a lot of coding companies that won't be in business in the next five to seven years. Um, you, you do run I a think. risk if you're going to sell a big ticket item and wonder if the brand, well, we even had a, a big brand recently completely change their formula. You know, I mean, there's stuff like that that happens that the detailer has no resolve and no say-so. And they just get told what to do. Why would they want that risk themselves to sell such a big ticket and have that liability on their own? Yeah, I, I agree. No, much much safer to go with. I think. Compliance. I think the other one these guys. I, yeah, I think the other thing a lot of these guys don't think about, and coming from the dealership world, you do, is you're selling a five plus year warranty to this customer with the coating, and you're putting it on some of these customers. They have the well-being to come make your life miserable afterwards. You're coding their Ferrari, you're coding whatever high-end car, and you're telling them there's this warranty. Well, they have the means to come after you. And you're going to say, well, I'll just recode it, but you're making claims to what it'll cover. It can come back on these guys in a big freaking way, and then they're going to look at their company and say, where are we at? And that's where the dealership's going to, unfortunately, earn back that customer because the dealership's going to say, well, Joe's garage didn't cover you. Laugh, ha-ha. We got you. We've been here for 30 years. We're a billion-dollar company. Don't trust that. I mean, that's where Dan and I talk about. If you if you round every company in our boutique segment together, we're probably not as – we don't do as much revenue as a 35 rooftop dealership. And how many of those are there? So, I mean, for us, it's – as a detailer, you're making this claim of five-plus years, and you don't actually have anything legal to back it up. That's why the dealer wins. Work can only speak for itself, but in five years, when they have a real claim, who's going to pay the thousand dollars to fix it? The dealership always will. Yeah, that's safe. safe. Uh, if well, I mean, listen, I, I like I said, I've worked with other you know dealership programs. They didn't always pay out, right? You Not know, always, like, but you have a better always, chance. You know. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Okay, we'll say the reserve's actually there, though, if they're, if they're doing it the right way. The money's there. Well, not, oh, not yeah, really. the money's there. What is it uh, for sealant programs? It's 3 to 5% of claims across the board, across the country, only 3 yeah, to 5%. I think it's 1 to 3. Did it go down? Okay, no. so this was when I, this would have been, Two. yeah, this would have been uh, 20, 2013, I think, when I took that class with uh, Permaplate. I think 2012. No, because I took it before my wife left. She left in 12. So, yeah, it would have been 2011. That was my staff from 2011. So, yeah, we so I guess actually... that was 10 years ago. So, yeah, over 10 years, it went down another percent. So, hey, at that... 2% for sealants, what is, I mean, can you imagine what a percentage would be for a coating then? 
What's a coding return back? 0.01? Yeah. So we were just talking about this. So one of the things in that segment, I think, that drove it so far down is really unfortunate. You had one of the big lending companies get a $2 billion fine for not approving subprime credit based not on credit, but on zip code. And so a lot of your subprime credit in that space, unfortunately, in the dealer world, get forced or convinced into purchasing some things they have no idea what they're buying. And then so some of those, I feel, account for the penetration. And then the claims aren't there because the clientele may, may not even know they purchased it. And then now if you look at it from a sealant to a coating, if the dealership brings on a coating or our coatings, yeah, the claim rate's going to be next to nothing because it's a real product. They're doing paint correction first. They're removing contaminants. And typically that customer then is also going to buy a maintenance product to maintain their coating. It's just, a, it's taking it to a new level. And when they get there, I saw something on your Facebook of the ceramic coatings bubble. I think once the dealership gets there to going real, not only is the car wash saying ceramic, everyone's saying ceramic, but really it's going to be a moment for everyone to say, okay, what do we do? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because uh, we are a part of, I mean, so my story is detailer to owner of a car wash to, well, you know, to the chemical side, right? But been detailing ever since 2002. We still have clients that we service today from 2002, 2003. So uh, going through a lot of the different spaces of cleaning cars, you know, it, it's interesting as I've been at all the different expos, it's not just mobile tech, then it's, you know, the car wash shows, the Southwest car wash show, there's the ICA show, you know, there's a lot of those that I've gone to. And I posted photos in 17 of, you know, those arches that were going to come that allowed for ceramic to be put on at the end of the tunnel. And people laugh like, Oh, that's the bullshit that's going to ruin it. It Anytime you come out with a new product, everybody in the industry is going to share off of it. The idea that detailers would think that, like you mentioned, boutique, right? Like the boutique side of the industry is going to control. There's no way. There's so much more volume of business throughout everything else in washing a car that they're going to adapt to technology also. I mean... It, it's crazy to think that we would control that market forever. There's no way. And so we will lose a lot of volume share of ceramics uh, if we continually to just focus on that five to seven and never go to try and meet somewhere in that middle to gain some of those people back that have been going to car washes. Uh, it is crazy that, and the people that are going through the car washes to get the ceramic are saying it's actually good shit. Like that's, what's crazy. Yeah, it, with the the technology now, it doesn't have to be the, the super difficult wiping peanut butter onto the car and struggling with it. it is the, it just keeps advancing and becoming easier, really? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, we have a solvent based system that the the application is really easy, and the and the product seems to last exceed you know anything that we could that we could even expect. Awesome. So I would like to see maybe, well, I think that the IDA as they're the industry leader that's trying to, and I'm a member of the IDA too, too I'm one of the recognized trainer people. Um, I think as a whole, if to help raise the industry up, we should really be pushing for everybody to reach some sort of compliancy or, or a way for everybody to kind of play on the same, on the same even playing field. But I don't, I don't really see any pressure from anywhere in the industry to have other companies, you know, match and do correct like we're doing, like you're doing. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think there ever will be with it. You don't think? I don't think there would ever be. I think most of the guys would look at, at a, I don't want to give up paying money to an admin to a reserve and then having to go through the pain in the ass of structuring it all. Because, I mean, you have, how, how, many, how many guys out there go by a coding white label and say, I'm going to get into this? And then they get into it and they say, I'm getting out of this. Or something goes awry, like you have a, a car gets screwed up and they have their first real claim they can't afford to fix it and everything goes south. I mean, or you're a big company, look at your profit margin and say, if we erode 20 points to do it the right way, what does that mean to our marketing and sales budget and our owner's distribution? That's what we're battling in our industry is greed. And then also a little bit of willingness to raise your standards, if you will. 
Yeah, I mean, why be compliant if you don't have to? Uh, I think the crazy for me was I moved from a multi-layer brand to, you know, we're a single layer and way we operate in that one to three year mark. Uh, the crazy thing for me was when you look at companies' warranties, and, the, and, and, it, and it was so mainstream and everybody agreed and, and praised that you couldn't do a normal car wash, right? But the idea that you we're going to tell the entire country, hey, you got to use a coating and you got to have it backed. And oh, by the way, you can't go through a car wash. I mean, it just limits us as, as an overall, you know, detailing industry to try and dictate to people how they clean their cars. You, you so I, that to me, yeah, to me, like when, if you've got a, if you've got a warranty that you're saying, you know, you're going to put a $3,000 product on a car, but then you're going to tell that customer how they have to not go through the normal maintenance the way they're used to. And they, they have to do it a new way. I just, I just, it's not going to move the industry overall. It's too much of a roadblock for overall growth. You really can't do that, nor can you tell somebody that they have to come back in on a, a yearly basis and have something, you know, done to the car to make the warranty stay valid. And you can't change the warranty term if they do go through a tunnel car wash or they don't come back to you in a year. That's, and I think the thing is, and somebody is going to burn somebody and it's going to be the wrong person and that person's going to file a complaint and then there's going to be a whole house of cards that falls down when whenever it gets exposed you know hey listen i'm with you i'm i'm crossing my fingers when that happens too i know there's plenty of people that have gotten burned already right i mean it's not only just customers but detailers there's a lot of detailers get burned by multi-level brands all the time because they don't want to pay it out because Oh, you know, they just find some clause and just go, eh, no, nah, we're not paying it out. It happens all the time. Yeah. I mean, user error used to be in, uh, pretty high up in my telephone call <laughs> response to people, um, which, you know, just kind of stinks for really. It's a crappy place for a rep to be in when they're when they have to talk to somebody and they're saying that. But again, yeah. I think it's going to be somebody's I just going to burn the wrong person. No, the, the fuel on the fire is going to be when the detailer and the dealership go head to head and the dealership says, I got a lot of money and I know the weak spot. This is what we're going to chase. And it's going to be, I mean, we're probably two years out from really the electric car movement even affecting that. But once it does, and once the dealership starts to get irritated by our segment, then it's going to be, well, what do we, where do we look at the weak spots? And they'll, they have the money to do it. As you guys know, when you work with Permaplate in a dealership segment, dealerships love attorneys. They hide behind them. In our segment, detailers hate attorneys because they charge too much. So, I mean, the whole thing is that whether it's a customer, the government, or a dealership, there's a lot of areas that all these people are exposed to have someone come in and rip the rug out from under them and make their castle fall. So... For us, it's we're doing things the right way. We don't have to worry about it, and we'll grow. Cool. All right, we'll I'm gonna hop into my second it. one. Which one do you recommend? Yeah. Okay, so the first beer you drank was from Vale Brewing. It was called like Special Eight. It was a double IPA. The one, do you want a fruit beer or an IPA? Uh, I'll take whichever you tell me. I'll take the I'll take the fruity one. So That's fine. That. I'll take the fruity one. Yeah. So the. So the fruity one's from Vale Brewing too. So, and that's, that's yours. An so all no, no, that's not yours. No, no, no. Yeah. So I wish I was Vale Brewing. Vale Brewing's out of Richmond, Virginia. They're like, they're good. With COVID, all these laws got lifted to where a to go to go beers are like the best thing ever, so that you can get now from a brewery or a liquor store or whatever. Um, but the other thing that came is a lot of these restrictions got lifted so the breweries can self-distribute online to states that allow it and ship it and Vail, They used to be only at brewery release. Well, in Nebraska, we got our law lifted so I can order Vail Brewing, get it shipped to me. Um, Hoofhearted was another one. They do funny names like Hoofhearted stands out for Hoofhearted or whatever. But this beer I'm drinking now is called, ironically, Key Bump. <laughs> they do a... Uh, <laughs> Funny names, um, but all these guys do awesome beer. And that one, I think, is a raspberry, blueberry, 
And then the beer world, everyone scores everything on untapped. I don't know if you go on untapped and look at beer scores, but I won't even, I won't even drink a beer if it scores under 4.0. Life's too short to drink bad beer, but your American Slayer down there, they, they are a king of untapped, but all the beers I'll drink. And I think that one scores over like a 4.4 for a fruit beer, which is pretty good. Uh, and it's, it was shocking. So it's fruit, but it's not full sour. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, no. Maltiness. It's a, it's very malty. So it, it kind of softened that sour. It, I don't taste any sour. I just taste like a, a lot of malt with a lot of fruit. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting taste. So there's a it's new cool. whole thing coming for for seltzers from breweries. There's a place up in Michigan. Oh, man, right? I believe their name is Smooth. Smooge. S-M-O-O-J. So these are seltzers that you pour like a thousand pounds of fruit in. And this thing, like the brew, the beer tastes like a smoothie. It doesn't you can't even taste alcohol. It's almost dangerous, and they're like four point three to five point six percent. And you can get caught I would off call guard. those panty you can go be riding your bicycle and drink ten of them. <laughs> Girl, yeah, they, they can get you in a hurry. Um, when you, if you ever come up to Omaha, we're brewing some of those. We're mastering. We're doing we're doing a play on Orange Julius. Um, Everyone likes Orange Julius, so why not? The other we're doing, strawberry banana, some coconut stuff. I don't know. My brother's the master disaster of that crap. So, But you'll have to come I up was, to Omaha. I, we're actually – so – I was trying to look up. I, so I was in Omaha. We had a, a large dealership group up there selling our coatings for a couple of years. And I can't remember the the – the, the guy had lost his job and then, you know, how it goes in the dealer world, like then the next guy and, you know, well, the next guy comes in and this changes to this and, you know, it is what it is. Uh, I was trying to remember what dealership it was that was up there. They they had a really cool program where they did, um, they rented out cars and did a lot of different stuff. Uh, was it um, Onyx? John? Like H&H? H&H, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so, so yeah, I was so up they, in Omaha maybe about three years ago or so. It was crazy coming up from Tulsa, yep. that drive. Once you hit up into Nebraska and go, uh, it there's a joke about Cornhusker State, but it becomes a real reality when three feet off of a major highway is nothing but cornrows. <laughs> I mean, for miles that you can, that's all you can see. And like the whole rest of the drive was nothing but cornfields. It was like, oh, wow. No, it's the, the other joke is so I'm not I'm from Iowa, which isn't much better, but <laughs> Nebraska's flat. So when you drive out to so we'll always go like skiing or whatever in Colorado and you can just drive because it's easier. And when you get in western Nebraska, it's like in Antarctica. It's tundras, like some tumbleweeds, and you can duct tape your hands to the steering wheel, close your eyes, you're gonna wake up in frickin' Colorado because all it is is dead straight, flat, and nothing. And also if you need gas, you're screwed. Yeah, that's a lot of the way our panhandle but, and um, and through West Texas. So we go skiing. Too. We go to the southern part. Uh, we go uh, Wolf Creek. Uh, my parents started going there, you know, as they were young newlyweds, and we just been going ever since. It's it's our little place. We love to go there. Where, where do you guys go? So we'll go to either my my cousin married a guy who had a house in Vail, so we'll go there a lot. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> Golly, Vail is, I mean, I never felt so uh, minuscule until I went to Vail. I mean, the amount of sheiks, the amount of, I mean, just ungodly amount of money that goes through Vail is just incredible. Like, <laughs> I, it, I, everybody goes to Vail if you've got massive amounts of wealth. So it's, it's, it's funny. So you'll ski down to the basin at the end of the day, and you'll see... Some of the ski outfits you see are just ridiculous. You're like, what the hell are you wearing? Do they look like a disco ball or people skiing in body suits. I don't know. It's, it's pretty wild. Um, and for those of you who've never been to Vail, it's, if you want something even crazier, Aspen's even crazier. Aspen you go to and you order a beer and they'll tell you it's $25. Um, Vail, the beer is only $16. And then if you want a normal experience, you go to like Breckenridge. Breckenridge is fun. Breckenridge is a college town, college skiers. Yep. You, like there's, yep. I think it's Eric's Pizza or Basement Pizza they changed their name to. You can have a lot of fun. But the other two, if you want some like 
some I some some fun people watching. It's crazy. Uh, so Breckenridge as a mobile cars. as a mobile detailer, uh, I went boarding up in Breckenridge, and right right here, I broke my collarbone hopping off. I I finally had got on a rail slide. And uh, about the time I actually finally landed the slide, I was on the ground going, wait, what happened? And uh, I was like, oh, my shoulder hurts. No, I broke my collarbone. <laughs> uh, it was brutal. But that's where I had to figure out how to go back to a mobile detailing business with a broken collarbone and survive. I mean, <laughs> bad deal right there. Uh, how do you have a broken collarbone and run a mobile detailing business? It was, uh, it was interesting. Was it a solo that's, business too? That Fortunately not. Fortunately, not. That is fortunate. But you saying that something that I've been thinking about with COVID, a lot of these detailers. So even one of our reps who operates a mobile detail business, he's not single-handed, luckily. But if you had 14 days of appointments and you got COVID, what are you going to do? And a lot not of these much. guys are booking out coatings, book out coatings for three weeks, and their schedule is so tight that, and then they don't want to reschedule it. I mean, the whole thing to me, the concept of being single threaded is very difficult. Um, and that's where a lot of these guys are terrified. For me, I kind of smile when I think someone says what I do is so secretive that I can't train someone. I think the smartest thing you can do is train someone to do your job. And then hopefully they learn how to do it better for you because nothing's proprietary that we're all doing. Everyone's using a DA. Heck, I can teach someone to buff with a DA who you have no confidence that learn how to buff because it's just easy. I mean, getting that, like, chasing 100% perfection or whatever else, yes, there's an art to it. But getting a car to 90 to 95% isn't difficult. And so the whole thing is train someone, bring someone under your staff, grow your business, scale it, expand it, and keep making money. And then hopefully one day, like, Dan, Dan's 50, what are you, 52? I am. And 52. Congratulations. Things, life's hard on you. You have new hip. Yeah, you have you have fake hip. You're getting a new hip. Yeah. I already um, quit drinking, so I couldn't match on that, anymore. and I can't ski. <laughs> yeah, da Damon, who is other owner, owner's pride, two of his ribs are unattached from beyond the lots all his life, and if he buffs a whole day, he's has to take a ton of ibuprofen the next day. So, what are you going to do when you turn fifty? You can't be out on the tools all day. You have to train someone and grow your business. So, I mean, that's for me is the my favorite thing to know is okay, a detailer. I'm going to hire someone. Perfect. Yeah. And if you take care of the people, I think that may be why a lot of the people leave. I know when I had a detailing business and somebody would ride along with me and they'd see how much money I was making. First of all, they would be like, hey, you made X amount of money. I should get more of that. And, and But they don't see what goes into getting the customers, making the business, ordering the products, you know, there's so much more than just going to that job. Let's talk, let's talk uh, philosophies in a sense, right? Because what you're saying is how, do, how does detailer move from single operator to actually having a scalable or quote-unquote uh, productive business that they can have for a long term, right, Dan? As long as you've been in the industry, you could probably have a massive sheet full of people that are no longer in the industry because they weren't able to continue, right? You just, we just mentioned injuries. I myself dealt with spinal stenosis. I've dealt with uh, issues. I mean, divorce, depression. You never know as a 23 year old kid, when I started, you know, cleaning cars, no way I would have known as a 42 year old operator that I would be battling what I'm battling today. There's just no way of knowing it. So how does a detailer that's single operator be able to bring on a second team member, bring on a third? How do we bring on a second location or a second vehicle if we're mobile? You know, those are massive questions that, you know, that's what I've tried to dive into on what we do. Uh, Rob Schrufer is an incredible example. He, he's a uh, two, 2004 or five, I think something like that. He started. Uh, cleaning cars, and then uh, he was a bartender at night for like three years. Well, now he has a hundred plus team members. Well, how how do you go from that to that? It's you got to. You're right. Like you got to take care of people. 
most detailers, I, I agree, we're, we're so passionate about what we do. We love uh, showing our work, and, and that's the artistic expression of us as detailers. Well, there's plenty of artists that starve. Yeah. It just is, right? You know, there's, there's a part of artistry that doesn't pay bills. and then So how does, a, how does an artist grow a business of artistry is, is, is definitely the dilemma that many detailers do struggle with. And so we, we've done interviews trying to, you know, encourage that growth from detailers that have made it. Yeah. That's, it's one of the features that we kind of offer in our network is to really try to help them understand how to grow the business. I mean, it's, it's astounding how many people don't have any concept of a sales process. You know, they're like, if they either close a sale right now on the phone or maybe I'll call them back if they sounded really interested. And, um, it, but that's but, one of the most gratifying things when you can like break through to somebody, especially a younger business person, and like help them get to the next level. Yeah, but talking about what you said a second ago of you know what do we pay people? What what percent? I think is a big struggle. If it, let's let's just use this example. We love it. Like you know, let's say you sell a hundred dollar detail. I just throw that number out there, right? Uh, hundred dollars. Then we look at it and we go, if somebody helped us with that, well, we're only going to give them twelve dollars out of it. You know, twelve dollars an hour, right? But then, like you said, people look at it and go, "Well, you're making all this money," and then so they want to. And there's a lot of detailers that struggle with that as they build up a team member. Then that team member wants to go build their own business and go make it their own self. And I get it. So what if, what if detailers paid a percentage? What if they understood taking a little bit on the chin for short term? You know, if what you really want out of your life and what you really want out of your business, if you could sacrifice short term to build long term and they just offered a good chunk percentage, you know, I, I would always love to hit that 40% mark. If I, if I could pay out 40% in labor, especially when we were in the car wash, we, we'd like to hit that goal of 40% of labor so that we made sure that our detailers were taken care of, you know, that they made at least 40% of what we were bringing in. That's a, that's a hard nugget to swallow for some detailers to offer 30%. You know, but if they did and they, they allowed team members to grow with them, I, that's a much more long-term approach and slower, but definitely more sustainable than 10, 12 bucks an hour. I would in one, in one hand say it just takes a level of maturity because in my probably the best employee that I ever had was my very first one, but I was not mature enough as a business person myself to give them more responsibility and pay them more money. I just couldn't, I couldn't see uh, kind of like we were talking, the guys who are younger can't see 20 years down the road. Um, it, I, crazy enough. I have a podcast coming up with um, Ben Gay the Third, who's written a series of books called The Closers, um, sold over 10 million copies, and he's an older fella. But it, it, and not to like give away his whole part of his story, but when he was in high school, he started a lawnmower business, and he did not go out and do any of the work himself. Right from the beginning, mm. he hired other people to do the work. He just went out and got the jobs booked, wow, and paid them half of it. Like, wow. as a kid in high school, the brilliant. Very I, brilliant, yeah. I think, I think looking at your percentage model, but then, so Clark, who's sitting behind me, and I used to own a very large restyler that would do all dealership work. So clear bra, tint, we'd do excess of 50 cars a day. Um, dealership coating, spray and bud liner, stuff like that. And there was 128 employees and the whole thing became, how do you talk to others? How do you staff? And then how do you keep workflow? And so your conversation of this is probably one thing that we racked our head around for years. And really what it comes down to is, okay, you want to pay a percentage of profit, but then how do you keep pace? Um, one of the things that we realized is, okay, how does the dealership keep pace with their mechanics? How do you keep a master mechanic happy? Well, then all of a sudden you bring it over to piece rate. So now you're paying per job. So as your level increases, I'll give you a raise. And body shops do this too. 
I'll give you a raise on your quality per car you do. So now we're now we're maximizing efficiency, training or skill, and on paid on a job basis. So, and then obviously if a job comes back, you have to redo it and you don't get paid. So now there's a repercussion for just cranking out crap work. And so if, say you have a mobile wash business, you want to hire a mobile wash person, you're charging 85 bucks a wash. You say, I'll pay you $20 per wash you do. Um, I have the van payment, the gas, insurance, and chem, and then workers comp, whatever else you offer. And then I'll pay you 20 bucks as an owner. You're like going to say, I'm going to profit X. Um, and then that person's going to work hard. They're going to bust out that job, go to the next one, go to the next one. And they know if they don't do quality, they're going to have to go back and redo it for free. And so I think piece rates, the answer to that, because now you're not just paying a percentage and then getting taken advantage of and saying, Hey, we're maxing the schedule. When you look at the body shops, every body shop, it was, I remember my family, that's what we came from. Started a body shop in 1956. And when my dad first switched to piece rate, his body shop guys were earning 125 to $145,000 in the nineties. And people thought you're nuts. You're paying your guys that much money to fix cars. And he said, I run. So in our town, there was another body shop that employed 20. He's like, yeah, so my I don't have to. team of four was more. Yeah, he with a team of four, he was more efficient than their team of twenty, because he and but they all they all made money. He made actually for a long time he made less than his highest paid guy, but they had quality work because they knew the rules, and no and people they had people applying there, left and right, and there was a wait waiting list to get there because it was you get treated right, you get paid right, and you do quality work, and customers always come. I mean that shop they were open. He sold it after 52 years. So, I mean, they were a long-term business. And his manager actually came back and bought the business from him. So, there's never a shortage of people wanting to get into a quality business, especially if they know the owner is going to take care of them. You know, and for these guys who are a small business and who are not expanding, you talk about the, not only are they in trouble if something happens, like if they get sick or COVID, but... Many of them don't have money saved up or accident insurance or, or or maybe one of the biggest things that I see is nobody saves for retirement. They invest all that money right back into their business and that paying the piper for that one isn't going to happen until they're old enough that they can't replace, you know, any income. Um, well, or just old enough to where you go, oh, shit, I don't have anything set back. Yeah, maybe around your late forties or uh, early fifties, that all of a sudden uh, the me, light it was, shines. It on. was kind of early thirties, mid thirties, like because by that time, I, I mean, mean. So let me ask this question: what, what, where do you guys see the majority of the industry in age wise? I see it eight, nineteen to twenty three is big, but that I took. To me, our customer base is heavy in that 24 to 35. To me, that's the big part of the industry. And and once somebody reaches 35, I mean, there's very few in the 40s. Dan, I mean, do you know any operator? I mean, there are some, but how many operators in their 50s? Yeah, the few and far between. Under 10? I mean... Few and far between, like yeah. owner operator doing all the Max, work themselves. Max probably the oldest. So yeah. I mean, for me, when I look at it, is until until you have something happen to you, you don't think about it. I used to. I remember when I when I felt sick or anything, I'd look at my body and say, "Come on, you got this. You're you're a workhorse." And then a year ago, I was. I've never. I've broken bones and didn't go to the emergency room. A year ago. I had an internal pain and I was laying on the floor and it was the first time I looked at my wife and I said, I need to go to the ER. I don't know what the hell's wrong with me. And for the next, so I went to the ER, got an ultrasound, got all sorts of stuff. The next two days I laid in the fetal position and couldn't move. And I was like, what is wrong with me? I feel like I'm going to die. And that was the first time I ever thought I was like, whoa, there's way more to life. And now I have to watch what I do. Hell, if I eat wrong, if I, I was also out of shape. And so like the whole thing is you take your body for granted until stuff starts to happen. And then when you get older, it's my body is only as good as how I take care of it. And I only have so much time with my body to do all this labor intensive stuff. And when you're polishing a car, I'd ask most of our detailers to think fast forward your mind 15 years. Do you want to still be sitting there 
freaking polishing the honeycomb of an Audi grill. No, an Audi grill is the worst thing in the world. It, whoever designed it should be shot. And so the whole thing for me is how do you got, how do you take that business to be scalable? How do you take that business to, like you said, have the right employee to trust? And then how do you break these guys' minds of saying, when I'm doing so proprietary, no one can do it or just overcome the greed to do it. And then the other thing, and this is what, like where you've been talking about this, my next thought is detail businesses don't sell for any money because when the business is done, it dies with the owner. So how do you make a detail business where you look at a normal business, an e-commerce business sells for what a seven to 10 multiple, a mom and pop business sells for a two to three multiple, a mom and pop with a small e-commerce sells for a five multiple. So, I mean, you look at all these business standpoints and say, what's a detail shop sell for? The rent? I, I gave mine away to Dustin. And every day I'm glad that I did. I mean, didn't give it away, but pretty much, really. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. We've worked with some detailers here that were selling. For me, you know, as I grew 2002 and then... Uh, uh, in 2006, I walked into a $1.6 million car wash and detail shop that I built with customers of my mobile detailing business. So they approached me, we worked together and we built this shop. Well, as I'm going to move into, it was called Zud's Car Wash. So I'm going to move into Zud's and I'm a mobile detailer. I was hitting, and this was, like I said, 2002, three, four, five. Uh, I was hitting 75 was about my regular, I would hit 75 grand once I got three, so four and five, and then a little bit of six and then moved in, you know, 75 grand for me in that time as a young single guy, I was happy, right? I mean, it was, it was good money for me here in Oklahoma. You can't sell for three times. I mean, I sold for $5,000 to two other detailers who divided my customer base and paid me 2,500 bucks a piece. I mean, just, it, and they took my team members, right? But you don't have contracts. You know, you, you don't have certain things to prove. It, it, it does become hard. Uh, you know what? I had a customer come through the other day that sold his business years ago. He, and we talked about this, he couldn't get anybody to buy it either. Fortunately, just found some guy that bought the number 1-800 car wash and was going to try and run some big thing. And, you know, some guy that just had this idea and threw all this money in, they lucked out. But they they spent a year trying to find somebody to buy it. And they had a much, much more, you know, because that would have been 11 and 12. You can make a lot more money in 11 and 12 than you could in 2003, 4 and 5. And they still had a hard time selling it. So you're right. I mean, it... It is extremely difficult to try and build up a, a brand of detailing cars to to flip it to somebody that would buy it and then pay you for three times the amount. It's almost unheard of. And those customers get so attached uh, when, when it's a really small business like that. They're so attached. There's no guarantee they're going to like the next guy who takes over the business. So I, I uh, really early on when I started, the guy who kind of taught me what to do wanted to sell me his business, but he wanted some astronomical number, which I was like, why am I going to give you all this money for your customer list? And that was all it was for. And there's no guarantee that those people are even going to like me. No. I, a lot of the customers I had moved over with me to the car wash. <laughs> they, you know, they once they experienced the other ones, they just reached out to me. And I go, hey, you know, listen, I, you know, you know where I'm at. If you want to bring a buy, go ahead. You know, I can't tell you not to be a customer. But if you had a scaled business of other people doing it and it wasn't your face, then now it would have value because the new. But here's the other thing of it, though the new owner might not have the training and wherewithal and you're not going to continue to babysit him for a year and say, Hey, yeah, this is what you do. So, I mean, but if you had, if, if a person had scaled up to where they had a team of mobile washers, one of our um, reps, his name was, this is also another crazy story of someone who built it. Paulo, Paulo had six mobile units out at all times. He lived, where'd he lived in? Where's Portugal. He from? Portugal. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. And then they had a uh, economic situation happen where his business was shut down. So he was had six van system, um, an economic swing hit and his whole business crippled overnight. And so then how do you face that to, then he had to move, he left the country, moved to Canada and restarted from nothing 
And so then it's also then how do you face adversity in those situations when you're King Kong somewhere and now you have to do what's best for your family and move. And how do you suck up your pride and do that? And I mean, he did it to the best of anyone I've ever seen. It was, it didn't matter what he take and working on an, he actually probably chose the job I wouldn't do of working on an oil rig. Mm-hmm. That's tough. Oh, me. That's Dude, tough. Yeah, they've taught me two things. I don't want to do it from Discovery Channel. <laughs> I don't want to do that, and I don't want to catch... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to do that, and I don't want to catch... Uh, well, crabs, but uh, specifically in the uh, Alaskan cold waters. <laughs> I guess it, crabs in general, for that matter, really. Well, guys, Unless we're eating them, right? Exactly. Um, so, you know, we, we hit over a whole bunch of things. We talked about some warranty compliance stuff, um, how to help guys build up their businesses. Um, beers, how they've changed since 98 when I quit drinking um, to a whole bunch of fruity, colorful label madness. Um, and uh, I think it was a really great conversation. I thank both of you for coming on today. Um, my, uh, pints and polishers, do you need to say any more than that? Do you want to see, tell... Anybody how to get a hold of you? Oh, yeah. Okay, so it's Pints, Pints and Polishing Podcast. Uh, definitely, you know, I'm sure you guys are out on most platforms. We are, too. Uh, love for people to hop over. Thanks. Appreciate you letting us throw out that plug. Um, we do what's called a community pub every Wednesday night at 730 Central. And uh, we hop on Zoom with the ID 918-800-1188. And we, uh, we drink beer and we talk about detailing. So uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Awesome. And then yeah, ownerspride.com and ownerspride podcast. All you got to do is Google it. It's everywhere. Eric, Marty, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to be on the owner's pride slash pints and polishing podcast. Yeah, Eric, thanks again for the beer, man. I, I think I actually did kind of enjoy oh. this one, maybe a little bit more. I'd, that IPA was super delicious because it was citrusy, but man, this thing. I don't know. It kind of grew on me, and that multi flavor with the fruitiness. I don't. I don't know. Don't. Don't. Don't hold me to it. But I. I kind of liked it. We hope you've enjoyed today's presentation of the Owner's Pride podcast. To learn more about our products, become an authorized installer, or to get a quote, visit ownerspride.com. over leave us a review and we will see you on the community pub wednesday nights at 7 30 central the zoom meeting id is 918-800-1188 that's the community pub wednesday nights 7 30 central the zoom meeting id is 918-800-1188 grab a pint and enjoy Ooh.